0: Hello, welcome to How to Write a Play. I'm Alex, I work for the Old Fire Station Arts Centre in Oxford, and we're currently running a playwriting course with Triple Olivier Award winner Mike Bartlett. Stay tuned for Mike's advice, writing tips, writing exercises, answers to questions from listeners, and our thoughts on the theatre world in 2023. This week we're talking about collaboration and commissioning. Mike, what are we covering in the course?
1: Well, it's our final session this week. And when I did a playwriting exchange with a Syrian playwright, he asked me, what is the higher purpose? So we're going to talk about why you write plays. What's your end game with it? What are you after? And once you know what you're after, how are you going to get it?
0: Mike, it's the last episode of the first series of How to Write a Play. I
1: like that you said the first series. Thank you. That's optimistic, isn't it?
0: I try to be. (laughs)
1: That we might come back.
0: I like to think we will. Like like,
1: well, yeah, I, th- I think maybe uh, if anyone's listening, our listeners should write and tell us what they've enjoyed, what they'd like us to do more of, um, what they'd like us to do less of.
0: What do you think Series 2 should be, listeners? Yeah. Write in info at oldfirestation.org.uk.
1: How to write a letter. <laughs> How to write a book. <laughs> How to write a book. How to write a list.
0: How to write a TV drama. Yeah. So, coming up at the old fire station this week, uh, on the 19th of July, we have Josh Berry, who's a comedian who does lots of characters and impressions. We have a piece of work by James Rowland, who is a theatre maker. You're nodding. Do you know James's work?
1: I do. When you say piece of work, is that?
0: The title of the show is Piece of Work by James Rowland. Very good. We have Drawing Club, The Return of Drawing Club on the 21st of July. We have Santi and Naz also on the 21st of July, which is a bit special because it's directed by Madeleine Moore, who's the director of our Christmas show, which is going to be in December, obviously, because it's a Christmas show. Makes sense. Glacier by Alison Spittle. Uh, but come and see Santi and Naz. And then we have I Want to Dance with Somebody, A Night of Whitney by the Oxfordshire Drag Collective. Amazing. Amazing. So, it's the last week of the course, and we're preparing our theatre makers for the professional world.
1: They're graduating. Graduating. Perhaps we should get hats and scrolls.
0: I should have got some champagne, but I didn't. I did get them a cake, though.
1: I think cake's more 2023 than champagne.
0: And reviews are out this week for a play called Mum, How Did You Meet the Beatles at Chichita Festival Theatre. And the play is about a playwright called Adrienne Kennedy, who was a... Black American writer in the 60s. And she, well, she was invited to the National Theatre to do a play based on the work of John Lennon. And she talks about how she was sort of cut out of the process. And she says at one point they had already decided I was expendable when she hears Laurence Olivier and people from the National Theatre talking about what she thought was her play. And she quickly realises not actually her play at all. And I was wondering if you had experience of, I mean, obviously you've been commissioned before, if you could tell us a bit about that commissioning process, if you have any advice for writers nowadays who maybe feel like their work is being lost. You've talked before about when you get lots of notes, especially in the TV process, people ask you to make lots of changes to your work. Yeah, if you could shed a bit of light on that process, that would be lovely.
1: Well, it's a really interesting story, that the play that's on, and there was a great article about it, I think, in The Guardian that I read. And it is interesting in terms of that moment when you're creating something, and I've definitely felt this lots of times, you're creating something or you have even thought of the idea and you suddenly get a feeling of exploitation. The difference between all this collective efforts trying to serve the art that you want to make and that you've done The switch between that and there is another agenda which now you are serving. And that is a really horrible feeling, and particularly if it's your own work. You know, what I've learned is when it's happened to me, I just have to sort of get out of there. I can't do it. The thing about the exploitation is often it comes with a lack of honesty it's fine to go as a writer and do a job for someone else, to go, right, this is somebody else's idea and you've got me in to rewrite the script or polish it up or write your idea, whatever. All of those jobs as a writer is fine. And writers are really most writers are really happy to do that as long as the terms of engagement are clear. And that's quite different to someone going, we're going to do your play. And in the end, it's all about what your play is. And I think that sometimes when it gets tricky is when producers are dissembling they're slightly sort of saying one thing and doing another and you feel like you're being managed also generally speaking if you're an artist that's what matters you know you want to make a living you want to be able to write the next thing you want to meet your responsibilities but beyond that you don't need it to make millions you certainly don't want to compromise it in service to that but that isn't necessarily true for the producers or the companies that are funding your work and the negotiation of that can be quite tricky but i think one thing that's great about theater and it being the last episode i feel like i really should bring him in is tony kushner there he is tony tony do you want to say anything tony He's he's got a picture on the wall in in where we record the podcast but he's not he's not no yeah, he doesn't, I, doesn't I, want to say anything
0: i made a little picture of tony kushner surrounded by hearts listeners if you're really lucky i'll put it on instagram oh it's
1: beautiful um He's such a clever man, but he talks about theatre being an industry full of people who can't tie their own shoelaces up. He means that totally affectionately before anyone thinks he's being insulting or I've misquoted or whatever. I absolutely know what he means, and he means it in a most affectionate way, which is that these are a group of people often on the edges of society or feel like they're misfits in some way, but their entire focus really is the art is the activity of theatre and they come into it through passion. And because that's actually most people working in theatre, particularly subsidised theatre, in the end they're not, even most people you work with don't want to do it for money. And that's brilliant, that's great, because they could probably get paid much more doing something else. So there's a reassurance there that actually they're doing it for the right reasons. That's one of the things I love about theatre in this country is it's a context like that. And so stories like this of people being exploited don't tend to happen so much in the subsidised sector, I think. They they can if commercial forces come in. And I think what more happens is what David Eldridge has been writing about this week in The Guardian is crimes of sort of omission of people being ignored or forgotten or falling through the cracks and theaters overpromising or, or all those issues. I think that more happens. But it doesn't happen so much that someone will just take your play off you. You know, you do get stories of people being banned from the rehearsal room and, and all of that. But for instance, the Royal Court Theatre, which is sort of like the model for new writing, has a policy that if there's a dispute with a play between the director and the writer, say, and it goes to that it's a director and it can't be resolved, and it then goes to the board, which it has happened, the board will in the end support the writer. That is the policy of that building. And that's really important both for that institution but also for the gesture of, how new writing is done and the place of playwrights it doesn't mean that always needs to be how a project works as i say there are other projects where you might be hired as a text editor or a text designer and there's also a lighting designer and you're all serving like the director's vision or something all of these models of course fine or you're devising or whatever but if you're doing a new play and somebody we were talking about this last week actually in the course if a writer has genuinely gone to the effort of doing all the full stops and the the punctuation and the careful they put all this work in then it does feel like in an ideal world you would investigate and find out as much as you can about all that work and try and get as much of it on stage as possible before you turn it into something else you know that's what you want from a playwright and a production of a new play and I think the other thing to say about playwrights as opposed to the idea of writing as just uh as a job is that there are certain writing jobs often in screen world where you sense that you could be slotted out and they could slot another writer in. And again, you're just sort of serving a a bigger vision and you're the latest writer on that, but you might get kicked off and then they'll get someone else in, or, you know, that does happen. One of the great things about a play is no one else can write your play. You know, if you've written a play, they can't really fire you and get someone else in to come and finish off your play. That would be ridiculous. Each play should be as distinctive as the playwright. And that's one of the fantastic things about it is that potentially scary things about it is that it's very revealing of the individual who has written a play. There's no hiding. It's bespoke and it, it's a mixture of your experiences and psychology and imagination. and Only you can do it. And that is fantastic. And so this story of an idea being taken off someone, there's a good reason that doesn't happen very often with new plays is because they are just totally unique and they are what they are and either you put them on or you don't and that's one of the brilliant things about it.
0: What are we covering in the course this week?
1: Yeah so this Syrian playwright who I was doing a workshop with said what is the higher purpose and I think he meant it in a sort of specific context of what we were doing but it really stuck with me. And it's a question that I ask quite a lot. And I think it's one of those questions where you could go, it's like, what is art? Or what's the purpose of art? Academics have discussed the answer of that for years and years and years. But I think that's not the point. You can ask that question of yourself. And I think it's quite important you do, which is, why are you writing? What are you aiming to achieve? Because the answers to that question can be very different. But if you don't at least ask the question and start to move towards an answer, and you could put a lot of energy into doing something that actually isn't really what your aim is or you could feel resentful of other people that get opportunities that actually when you think about it you don't want those opportunities and you know it's related to why do you write in the first place what are your genuine ambitions for your work as an artist and if you look at all the artists in all fields they all are all very very different and they want very different things and i think i'm going to encourage the writers in the course, to be very honest, we're not going to necessarily share these things. So if they want to write, I, I I want to make lots of money, or I want to be famous, or I want the respect of my peers, or I want to make people laugh, or all sorts of answers like that, that might be seen as not as profound as saying, I want to change the world or whatever. That's fine. The crucial thing is that they're honest with themselves. So we're going to look at that. And then I want to do a thing I heard a course did in a drama school a long time ago, which is I want to get big bits of paper, and we're all going to contribute and draw an industry map which is like so who's the artistic director of which buildings and which ones take new work and which ones have are going to get a new artistic director and who knows who and we'll add in as much as we know as a group it's not a gossipy map just to say that it's not about who's friends with who and who doesn't like we're not going to get into that it's more just pooling the resources of what the industry looks like as far as we can do both across the country or london and also in this area as well once we've done that we'll take a picture and everyone's got all that information which is potentially very useful but then we're going to do another map which is a other possibilities maps which is what other opportunities are there what other possibilities are there to have your play seen read performed that aren't those professional theaters and this relates to what we were talking to katie about in the previous episode which is she had, what did she say, 800, 900 people enter the women's playwriting competition. How many plays campaigns Plough do in a year? Like, I would guess in full productions, less than 10. There are other theatres who would do them. But generally speaking, you're going to have, out of that 800 people who have written a play, 780, say, are not going to have their play on. So there's a question about what do they do, those 780 people. And I think it's really beholden on us to think about the answer to that question. But I think it's also important as a writer to think about what your focus is and to not restrict yourself to just those professional portals and and places, because there are lots of other possibilities, I think. So we're going to do a map of those, of ways in which you might put the work on yourself, ways in which there might be, we talked in another episode about reading your play in a living room? Could you write a play that would be done in living rooms across the country? Could you write a play to be done by amateur groups? Could you write a play to be done within families? Could you do a podcast play? There are all sorts of ways in which I think that work can be put out there and be absolutely as legitimate as, in inverted commas, professional work. And I think there are huge possibilities there that... Are worth exploring and talking about. So anyway, we'll have those two maps, and then we'll talk about where does your, you know, for the writers, where does your vision, your ambition fit within those two maps? What are there possibilities you haven't thought of? And then in that way, you've got a vision. You know where you want to end up, or you've some sense where you want to end up. What are you going to do to get to that place? And we'll think about those strategies. And then that all comes with a massive caveat, which is the best thing you can do for your work and your art is to practice and get better at writing. For every 5% you put into networking or thinking about your career strategy, you should do the 95% of just getting better at writing because actually really good writing will do a huge amount of this work for you. So that's the caveat on this whole session. It's really good to talk about, I think, what you do with your work and the industry and all of that sort of stuff, but being really clear, great ideas, great writing, really practiced there's no substitute for it in terms of opening doors for you and 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 doing the work for you and then i'm going to finish with a quotation which is a samuel beckett quotation which is from his play play at one point a character says i know now all that was just dot 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 play and then later they say all this when will all this have been dot 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 just play And I'm going to ponder whether to leave that hanging for people to go. What does that mean, or whether to unpack it? What do you think? Do you think I should?
0: I think unpack it.
1: Is it too oblique?
0: I I think so. Okay. But then I, my theatre origin story, listeners, is that I once walked out of a production of Waiting for Godot by Samuel Beckett when I was aged 14 um, at the interval. And now I work in professional theatre, so it can happen to you. But um, so I, Samuel Beckett and I are not friends. So I think unpacking it would be very useful.
1: I, to me, Samuel Beckett makes more and more sense the more we all hurtle towards our grave. So I'm not sure he's designed <laughs> for 14-year-olds, really. And I think what this quotation is sort of trying to speak to, which is, it, is sort of at the heart of what I believe, is that you look back and you dismiss things as being play. play. It's just play. We're just, we're just playing a game, it's a playful. But then if you don't believe in an afterlife and you don't believe in some profound purpose or design or God or any of that, which I don't, then what is life? Will all this be considered just play? And if you think about that, then maybe you don't trivialise play, but you make play not only profound, but at the heart of what it is to be human. So in that sense, when you're writing a play, perhaps you're getting at something the absolutely, maybe you're edging towards something to do with the meaning of life, if you're of a certain mindset. So I thought that sort of like slightly pretentious thought would be a good way to to end, but it's, you know, it relates to the fact that if you have often countries that have been through a certain crisis of war or a natural disaster, one of the first things they will do is build a performance or a national theater or some way of sharing stories and, and culture comes up very high on the list of priorities of people when you're rebuilding a country and a society. And I think there's a reason for that. And I think if we're talking about what's the higher purpose, I suppose that's for me, it's as far as you can go, isn't it? It's like, how does this, this activity fit into our purpose in life? And I don't really mind asking big questions. I don't care if they're pretentious. I think we should do, you know, that's part, but we're artists. If we're not asking big, stupid, profound philosophical questions, existential questions, then, then we're not, you know, we're not really grappling with the big stuff, are we? So, all right, I will do that quotation and then um, unpack it. And maybe people are lost. Maybe you should um, go back to Beckett now. When did you last check him out?
0: I saw Jess Tom do Not I back in cool. 2018, 19. Yeah. That was probably my last Beckett experience. It was very good. I
1: didn't see that. There's a great film of play, the the play play, on YouTube with... Alan Rickman, Juliet Stevenson, and someone
0: else. We'll link it in the show notes. It's
1: really good if you're into that sort of thing.
0: I will, I promise, I will watch it.
1: It's not that long. Even better. <laughs> like life.
0: <laughs> Would you like to leave us with any writing exercises?
1: Well, because I've got this quotation from Beckett with the play, play, I thought that we could do a couple of exercises. Themed around that. And in a way, Beckett is quite, is, is such a distinctive, unusual writer. And it's not, we haven't really gone into that world massively over the course of like stage, full on stage metaphor and poetry. We've really talked about narrative and arcs and character development. And Beckett just doesn't really deal in that way. So it's a couple of things to tap into a couple of, if you watch that film of Clay online, it will make sense of these exercises. So the first one, I've called Metaphor Matches because I wanted it to sound like a sort of card game. So you write, first of all, a list of existential states. So it'd be like despair or hysteria or jubilation or abject misery and make them as sort of extreme as they can be. And if they can be linked to a sense of what it is to be alive. So sheer sexual desire, you know, it's like that sort of, scale of existential like states that one might be in so write a list of those say write 10 of those and then write separately maybe underneath it then write a list of physical experiences that you might do like like sitting on a really really hot beach on sand that's sticking to your skin or jump, jumping out of an airplane and being concerned that you haven't got a parachute or whatever and then For every existential state that you've written, think of a physical metaphor for it. So what is that existential state like? So is anxiety like sitting on a hot beach and the sand starting to cling to your skin? And try and get into the detail of what exactly that metaphorical physical state is for your existential state, and then do it the other way around, which is when you've got that list of physical states, what does that speak to in terms of a metaphorical existential experience or feeling? So because in Beckett's work, often that's what he's doing. He finds a stage metaphor to articulate something quite profound and deep about the human experience. So in the play, play, there's three people trapped in urns. In Happy Days, the main character is sort of trapped in on top of a huge sort of hill and not i we talked about it's just a mouth and so one thing that you can do another example of this would be at the end of sarah kane's play blasted when or in the sort of last third of it when this what seems like a naturalistic hotel room the wall is burst open and a soldier comes in and war crashes through the experience of a what seems like an everyday hotel room even though there's quite extreme things happening in that hotel room. But it becomes a language of stage metaphor in that last bit of the play. And so it suppose it's trying to free up your muscle to think of what you could do like that and how you can use the stage to create meaning in ways that are not just linguistic but are semiotic. How does the stage create signs of meaning on stage and often visual? So that's the first thing. And then secondly, play has a spotlight which moves between the three different characters and it's almost like the spotlight prompts them to speak and then they have to speak. They have, they're have sort of forced to speak like torture. So as a writing exercise, as a bit of automatic writing, and again, I think trying to really, in this exercise, trying to focus on what Beckett has, which is real rhythm of speech and the need to almost, in some of these plays, to sort of babble and language just spewing out of these characters. So try and force that and see where you, you might find something. So you, imagine you have three characters, A, B, and C, and you're going to set a timer on your phone, and it's going to go off every minute. So for the first minute, you write A, and A has to speak. But the moment your phone goes off and you reset it back to naught, you have to move to B, and then you have to go to C, and then you have to go back to A, and then you have to go to B. It'll be interesting whether they end up talking to each other or whether you end up telling three fragmented stories that might either speak to each other or indeed not, but you end up with parallel stories. There are great plays that have that form that actually, obviously Beckett wrote that play, but there are other plays which have fragmented monologues that intercut and sit alongside each other, like John Donnelly's play Bone or Chris Thorpe's play Static. Certainly with with Static, that is what all that the play is in a way is, is two monologues that are intercut and speak to each other and speak to us. So There's an exercise sort of for just like that spotlight is torturing the characters and forcing them to speak. This alarm on your phone is gonna torture you and force you to write and see what you what you get out of that.
0: I have one last question from you. This is from Chris. Stage directions and scenes with hardly any speaking. Are there conventions about how much stage direction writers should put in, especially when writing a scene that is primarily visual? Or do you avoid those sorts of scenes?
1: We've sort of talked about this a little bit, haven't we? About For me, it's like the stage directions of what do you need to play the game. So it might be that you need this particular wall, this particular environment, French windows. You might need to describe this sort of glass. You might need to be real huge amounts of detail. And if there's a moment, you might need to describe it in a massive amount of detail in order for that to carry the meaning you want to carry. But I think as much as possible, because theatre production tends to be a collaborative art form, and hopefully you'll be working with a designer and a director, if you can leave space for them to interpret and and add, then that should be your aim. You don't actually, most writers don't want it to be literally everything that's in their head. And if they do, they probably should be directing it themselves and potentially designing it themselves. But for me, anyway, the, one of the joys of it is working with people. So for me, it's about... What carries the meaning? If it's essential to the meaning, put it in the play, however long that stage direction is, however much detail it needs to go into. But if it's not essential, then leave it out and leave it, leave it to the joy of working with some people later down the line.
0: I wanted to finish off. We've had an update from Dave in Stratford-upon-Avon. No way. He wrote to us to yeah, ask weeks about ago. how to do things and how to get involved. Um, and Dave has written an update. Would you like to hear from I would Dave? love
1: to hear from Dave.
0: You very kindly read out and answered my question earlier in the series, so I won't be cheeky in asking another. Instead, I just wanted to say that when I wrote to you, I completed a play that had just stayed in my mind for years. I honestly thought it was the only one I had in me. Then two things happened. I started listening to this podcast and using some of Mike's exercises, and following advice, I started actively engaging with the local writing group I joined. Since that happened, I've completed a second play and started in earnest on three more. It's as if my entire life up until this point was a protracted period of writer's block, and now I am unable to stop. Next up is a workshop for my original magnum opus, followed by a propaganda campaign to infiltrate every new writing competition in the land. In short, thank you, and as always, thanks to Tony Kushner.
1: Oh, thank you, Dave.
0: Thank you, Dave. Isn't that
1: amazing, and thank you for letting us know, because we do feel like we've sort of put this out into the ether and. You never know, do you, who's listening or whatever. That's really, really lovely and really great to know, isn't it? It is. That's what we were hoping for, something like that. That's great.
0: So there we go. That is the last episode of season one, she says, optimistically, of how to write a play. Thank you, Mike.
1: Thank you. I hope that people have enjoyed it and I hope that people have written a play.
0: Tell us that you've written your plays, listeners. info at oldfirestation.org.uk. How to Write a Play is hosted by Mike Bartlett and Alex Coke. Editing and music is by Hannah Gallardo Parsons and it's produced by the Old Fire Station Oxford. Please support us by giving five-star ratings and reviews wherever you get your podcasts to help us get seen by more theatre makers. This show receives no exterior funding. If you'd like to support the work of the Old Fire Station, please donate at oldfirestation.org.uk.